Welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville in New Orleans. I'm Al Hunt. We have a fabulous guest once again, John Ralston from Las Vegas. Going to come back to John in just a minute. But let me first ask you to please subscribe, rate, and review 2020 Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We are doing it from American University, where we are in collaboration with the Sign Institute and the great Amy Dacey. You know, uh, James, we have to have Amy on one time. She not only worked in politics for you, she's an expert on, she's thought about brokered conventions. But, you know, James, I traveled around the country for many, many years covering politics, and there's a handful of states, if that, that you can go to, and you know there's one person who knows everything. And if he or she tells you, it is it is the gospel. And no one is no one fits that bill better than John Ralston in Nevada. For years, he has been the go-to person out there for anybody who cared about it. He publishes now his own publication out there following politics. He's going to be a moderator on that debate tonight in, in uh, Las Vegas. So when we have John Ralston, James, we have the world today. Hey, John, th- first of all, thanks for being with us. I, I, am, I am struck that every debate we've had just about so far, the focus has been on the front runner. It was Biden in the beginning, then for a while it was Warren, and then it was Buttigieg. The focus tonight, uh, the, the front runner, it seems from all polls and indications, is clearly Bernie Sanders. But the focus tonight ain't going to be on Bernie Sanders, is it? It's going to be on that, that, uh, one, that one-time New York mayor with deep pockets. Well, first of all, l- let me thank you, gentlemen, for that uh, for that introduction. I don't now now I better not say I don't know to any of your questions. At least pretend I know everything, uh, and and so I can do that too. Listen, uh, I I I think it depends on uh, what the moderators ask, and I am contractually prohibited from telling you anything about that. Uh, but seriously, listen, uh, Bloomberg being on stage tonight adds an element to this that you're right. We have not uh, seen before. I think that Bernie Sanders who is, I think, by some measures, the front runner in the race right now, relishes the fact that Bloomberg is going to be there even before Bloomberg uh, qualified for this debate. And remember, he's not even on the ballot in Nevada. Bernie has been using his rallies here to attack Bloomberg. He loves that contrast uh, with Bloomberg. And you know what? From Based on what Bloomberg's doing, he wants everyone to think past all the rest of the candidates and, can, and have this race framed. Uh, starting on Super Tuesday as Bloomberg versus Bernie. So I, I think you're right, Al. There's going to be a lot of focus on him. A lot of people don't know a lot about uh, Mayor Bloomberg, and they're going to learn a lot more tonight, I think. Well, I'm not going to ask you about the moderators, obviously, but what you, you talk to voters out there all the time and politicians. What are they looking for tonight from Mike Bloomberg? Well, I, I listen, listen, I don't think that the, there has not been a lot of talk about Bloomberg in Nevada until very recently because he's not on the ballot here and he's not spending a fortune on ads uh, here as he is in, in, in many of the Super Tuesday states. But I, I, I just, I, I, to be honest with you, I think that the, what they really want to know is, who the hell is this guy? I thought he was a Republican. Wait a second. Is he the guy with stop and frisk? And is he the guy who said that thing about redlining? But then again, he's a big guy on climate change, I think. And here in Nevada, uh, you, you guys may not know, he spent a fortune. I think it was about $10 million a couple cycles ago to pass a background checks bill. Uh, uh, at the ballot. And he got a lot of name wreck out of that because the NRA put his face on TV saying Bloomberg was coming into the state. I don't know how much residual memory there is of this. You know how that goes. But uh, I just think they want to know who the hell is this guy. So, uh, John, we'll go to a couple of uh, procedural questions here. First of all, 
how big do you think the turnout is going to be, just based on what you see now? And what are we looking at here? Uh, James, I, I just found out this morning that um, there's been four days of early voting, as, as you know. They've never done that here for a caucus. It just ended yesterday. The caucus is on Saturday. Uh, 33,000 people turned out yesterday, which is about what uh, the combined total was the first three days. The total turnout is now 70,000 already before the caucus. In the, in 2016, you had 84,000 people turn out, and there was only one day to vote. So I think they're going to blow past that. The question is whether they can get to 2008 levels uh, when, when they got to almost 120,000. So there's a lot of enthusiasm. What's really interesting is the early data seems to show that at least half of these people are new voters, new caucus goers. That means they didn't vote in a caucus uh, in 2008 or 2016. So let's go to this, the vote count. All right. For as long as I've been in politics, you television or you own television or you watch it, you own your computer and people report to the Secretary of State and you generally know. It, now, of course, we have the, this this app and they're going to use the app there. Did, did, have you done any reporting on this? Uh, what are people telling you? Do they expect it to go smoothly? Uh, nobody knows. Uh, some combination of all of those things, <laughs> James, I, I have to tell you, For, you, you know, you know, the, the you, you know, the folks here, uh, uh, James, who run the party and, you know, Harry Reid's people and Rebecca Lamb and that whole crew, they are some of the best, most talented people in the country. Right. So that, listen, uh, if anyone can do it, they can, but it's a caucus, right? You take that first of all, and then things are going to go wrong. You got the hundreds, maybe thousands of volunteers and you had this disaster in Iowa and, and Nevada was going to essentially run the same way as Iowa. Iowa, with that app, they've now discarded the app and essentially erected an infrastructure from from scratch using Google Forms and trying to really reduce the amount of technology. Paper ballots were used in in, er, in early voting. Uh, but the real question here is whether or not there's going to be chaos, it seems to me, is if they can do the process smoothly, and we still don't know exactly how they're going to do this. You guys know how caucuses work. You go in on caucus day, and if you get to 15% viability number of people with your candidate, you continue on. Well, how do you do that with early voting? They, they did ranked choices. They had to vote for at least three candidates. They got to transfer all of those results into the right precincts to help establish viability on Saturday. Uh, is that going to go smoothly? Are there going to be minor glitches or major glitches? And so uh, I'll end with the last thing you said, uh, James. I don't know. <laughs> uh, listen, I'm hoping it's not a train wreck. I think it'd be terrible for the state and for, and for the caucus if it were. But the expectations here by some people, a couple national outlets have already done stories about chaos, etc. And I know that you would never have done this in your career, James, but some of the campaigns, I think, actually are putting out the word, we think this is going to be a disaster because they don't think they're going to do so well. And oh, so wow. I, want, I know you would never do anything like no. that, but they're doing that. No. Oh, no, 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 never, do, never do dirty. Uh, 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 a hack like me? Right, exactly. <laughs> You know, you know, you mentioned a minute ago, John, uh, Harry Reid, uh, who has had his ha, has been ill, is uh, he I, I gather he's still a real force uh, in Nevada. Is he doing anything? Has he indicated any preference? Uh, is he worried about Bernie? I mean, anything you can tell us about Harry Reid? 
So here, here's the thing about Harry Reid. He said he wasn't going to endorse uh, before the caucus, and he is still very influential. His people essentially run the show out here, and he's still, you know, they all come and kiss his ring and visit with him and take advice and listen to him. And he still has a lot of influence uh, in the state. Not as much maybe as he once did, but he still has a lot of influence, and his tentacles are, are, are out everywhere because of, of his uh, people, Al. But listen, he went to early vote and he made a big show of, of showing everybody his ballot. And there's, you can vote for up to five people. And he filled in the same line and all five lines uncommitted. Uh, he wants to make it clear that, 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 that he said he has friends in this, et cetera. Listen, um, he was very worried about Bernie in 2016, I, I think, and, and did everything he could behind the scenes to help Hillary. He's not doing that for Biden. And I think Biden is the guy he would have endorsed, but after Biden, Got 9% in New Hampshire. I, I think uh, knowing Harry Reid, I don't know this for sure, but my speculation is he said, you know what? I made a smart decision not endorsing anyone right. here. Right. Yeah. So what percent of the people, and I know it's a rough guess, but we're just doing a rough guess, do you think will be uh, culinary union members or household members of culinary union households? What, how is there an influence exaggerated, not exaggerated, not appreciated enough. Talk to us a little bit about the culinary union. It's a great question, James. For, for people listening who don't know much about the culinary union, uh, it's, it's the largest union by far in Nevada. 50 to 60,000 members uh, represents folks who work in, in the casinos. They are the 800-pound gorilla of democratic politics here, and they are the Latino turnout machine as well. About half of the union is Latino. They do a great job of messaging to their workers and then turning them out. Uh, they, they have been able to, to have a lot of success in, in smaller political subdivisions uh, from a, a congressional race down to a, a local race. As far as presidential races go, their, their record is a little bit different. Right after Hillary lost in 2008, in New Hampshire, they endo immediately endorsed Obama. Now, Hillary uh, actually won in New Hampshire, through. but she lost in Iowa. Won. Yeah. Uh, that's what I meant. I meant to mention she won New Hampshire, and so Obama needed something here coming to Nevada. And so they got they got the, the culinary union's endorsement right away, but Hillary still won uh, Nevada. They stayed on the sidelines in 2016, uh, although I think at the end they came in to help Hillary a little bit because if you remember that after Bernie won uh, by, by uh, um, a landslide in New Hampshire, the Clinton folks were really worried. And so uh, a lot of things were done to save the state for Hillary and she barely hang on, held on after having a 25-point lead. But listen, if they had come out really strongly, they, they put out some flyers that have been, kind of been anti-Bernie flyers. They're upset uh, about Medicare for all. They say he's going to end their health care. And then all of, the, all, all of uh, the Bernie brothers have gone after their leaders in very nasty ways in the way that they do on social media. There's a lot of tension there. But they still decided to do a press conference and say we're not endorsing anybody. So whatever their influence might have been is now dispersed, right? If they had said, we're all in for Biden, Biden is the guy that we that we want you to caucus for, had started doing daily messaging to their members, they might have been able uh, to put their finger on the scales here, but they didn't do that. So a lot of them are going to vote, James, but I think a lot of them were already committed to other campaigns before the, I mean, I mean the rank and file here, before uh, the, this announcement was made. 
You know, I want to go back to Mike Bloomberg for uh, just a second, uh, John. I, I, I worked for Bloomberg News for 14 years. I know Mike Bloomberg pretty well. I'm not close by any means. Uh, he's incredibly smart. He will be very well prepared tonight. He'll be, uh, I'm sure, under fire for stop and frisk, for comments he made about the 2008 crash, redlining for the things he said about women. And, and, and he will be prepared, I'm sure, substantively. But but what what do you think he needs to do as far as tone, as far as what he presents, as far as what comes across? Because as you said earlier, people want to know who is this guy. Exactly. I, I did an event last night here uh, for the Nevada Independent, my news site, with uh, three New York Times reporters, uh, uh, Jonathan Martin, um, Alex Burns, and Maggie Haberman. And Maggie Haberman has, you know, covered Bloomberg for a long time when she was covering City Hall. And, and she said one people don't realize one thing people don't realize about Bloomberg is just how thin-skinned he is. And it'll be interesting to see how he reacts because he's going to be under a lot of fire. He is, of course, as you said, Al, very, very, very smart. And so the question is, uh, you know, you can prepare people, uh, as James knows, with with sound with 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 nice soundbite moments. But he's going to have to parry, and there's going to be things that come up that he may not uh, even expect. And so, I think this is going to be a really interesting moment for him. If the if if the if the take afterwards is that Bloomberg did well, that's going to be a huge deal for him, and it's going to be a blow to every other candidate in the race, except perhaps for Bernie. Uh, and because you know, this is where Biden has to make his comeback. This is where the others have to make a name for themselves. Look, one of the traditionally, one of the, I think, overrated events in a campaign are the debates. I mean, everybody goes crazy and, you know, they, this one, you can't hype it enough. Right. Right. I agree. And the reason is it could be a train wreck. And when people think there could be a train wreck, they're going to watch. They're going to watch. And they probably, I think Warren is going to turn to Bloomberg and say, Mayor Bloomberg, there are numerous confidentiality agreements you have with women. Will you release them and allow us to hear their voice? Because I'm a believer that women's voices need to be heard, not suppressed. Thank you, Mayor Bloomberg. May I hear from you? Yeah. yeah I think those kinds of things are very possible. You know, I, I think she, the one thing about her, she's a hell of a lawyer. <laughs> and... And she does very well in these debates generally, right? She, she's, she's, she's very quick on her feet and, and, and she knows how to get her points made. So, yeah. And listen, that's a vulnerability for him. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, I, see, I think Biden should just be the, 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 the uncle of the whole thing. All right. Now, look, I understand we got disagreements on the stage. All right. If he goes in and, and jumps on Bloomberg, because you know Warren is, you know Klobuchar, you know, you know the moderators are going to go after Bloomberg because that's where the whole freaking interest is i mean at the end of the day it's television and you watch that and you cannot keep your eyes off of michael bloomberg because you've never heard him speak you don't know the sound of his voice yet in his campaign so you know now who are the other moderators it's going to be you and who else uh it's it's lester holt uh, uh chuck todd hallie jackson and vanessa hulk from uh telemundo well, you, you, you know, you mentioned that uh, uh, Maggie's, I think, very good point that uh, he's thin-skinned. Uh, he also is a guy who is incredibly smart, and he owns his company uh, 90%. He doesn't like to, uh, you know, say, hey, I was wrong. And, you know, it took a long time to do the stop and frisk, uh, you know, apology. And there's a number of issues that, you know, you both have touched on already. Uh, the redlining of 2008, the, uh, the uh, women, uh, China. Uh, and there's a whole lot. He's going to have to do a whole lot of, um, you know, mea culpa tonight, which does not come naturally to him, uh, John. 
Yeah, I think that, listen, and all of that stuff is likely to come up tonight and probably uh, more, Alan. And, and listen, um, he is very smart. He's got some smart people around him. You assume he's going to be prepared. But as anybody who's watched campaigns, uh, as you and I have, Al, or been in them, like James knows, you can prepare. You can see someone who's totally prepared, but then something happens in the moment and, and, and everything can unravel or they could rise to the occasion. And I think people are going to be looking at Bloomberg saying, which is it going to be? Uh, are you going to be prickly? Are you not going to react well? Or are you going to be able to rise above it in some way? Very, very difficult to predict. But that's why I think James is right. There's going to be a lot of people watching tonight because of that anticipation of fireworks. Look, I, I am. And I, I, I don't watch a, but a quarter of them. But, you know, I'm going to be right in front of the television, man. You're watching because I'm going to be on, James. Just admit That's it to right. the people who Just, are listening I will, here. I will, John. You know what? We've been knowing each other for God knows how long, and, I'm, yep. and you're going to be the star tonight. Well, yeah. I watched, <laughs> I, John, I watched two. That's all. I watch you, and I watch my wife. So uh, I want to make, make clear. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to get in trouble at home. Right. <laughs> I think what's happening is that the Bloomberg advisors are going to be with him, and they're going to give him a, a, like a safe space to go. If he, you know, If you look, if you get into trouble – Say, you know, I've had a long career, of course, like anybody, I've made mistakes, but, you know, look at this and then segue, you know, try to, you know, but we we, we can discuss that, but I also want to discuss this. It'll be something, and it's going to be interesting. What I'm going to be looking for is to see if he has a designated safe space and how skillfully and, and artfully it, it, can he go back to it, because a lot of times, they just give a safe. Don't, don't let anybody get to the left of you. So they're just like they're following some Bernie Sanders out there. Somebody says, go back and go always go back to your bio or go. You know, I, everybody does that in politics or, or go back to your education plan. It, it's going to be one of the things that I'm looking for is, what, you know, what where, where's it, where does he think he can, he can, you know, regroup and push out when he's under yep. attack? Yeah, I agree. And I'm looking at Biden. And I just think it would be a terrible mistake for him to jump in on the attack. He doesn't have to, right? No. And he, like, he is not going to get to Milwaukee with, with, with 50% of the delegates. That's not going to happen. All Joe Biden has to do is be a professional good guy. And when the pain is in Milwaukee and the streets are full, and to say, well, you know what? What about Joe and Stacy? For a four-year term, and, not, you know, let's no, get, no, let's no, pull not this Stacey, wisdom but tooth we got. Somebody else. I mean, okay, yeah. Kamala. Yeah. No, yeah, I mean your I, point I, about I, Joe I, is no, right. The name doesn't matter. Yeah, my, the name doesn't matter. Just <laughs> Joe and somebody else, and let's get out of here and, and you know do this and, and get on the general election and beat this guy. I, that's if I'm Joe Biden, that's my strategy. Just. That make my you're not gonna you're not gonna get there. You do as well as you can, get as many Latino votes as you can in Nevada, bust your balls in, in 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 South Carolina, stay stay out there because that when Bernie's gonna have a hard time convincing people that, that he can win if he get you know he's gonna be there in the, probably in the lead, and I, I just think it, they're gonna turn to somebody who was in the race before, and a Biden one term is not threatening to other people. John, I know you have to go. Um, and, um, we, you know, we talked a lot about Mike Bloomberg, a little bit about Bernie, about Biden. You know, the three others uh, that are, are three of the others that are there. And I, let's put Tom Steyer off to the side for a second. Buddha Judge uh, and Klobuchar and Warren, 
they have to, in order to get any, they, you know, Amy got a little bit out of New Hampshire, Pete's gotten some out of both, Warren's slipping. They got to do, I don't know, win, show, or place, I don't know what, get a little bit out of Nevada uh, to go into South Carolina where they're not doing well, so they're still competitive on March 3rd. I agree with that, Alan. I think the really interesting dynamic here is that most of the campaigns are almost seeding first place in Nevada to Bernie. They think he's ahead by a little or a lot. Now, whether that turns out to be true, there could be upsets because of the way caucuses work and polling really doesn't tell you that much because some of those people are not even going to be able to be, vo- be able to vote for the people they want to. But having but having said that, if that's true, the the, uh, the rest are kind of clustered in in the mid to low to low teens, and so. I think this is a last stand for for Biden in some ways, because if he loses Nevada the way that he lost in Iowa or or, or New Hampshire and also ran here as well, I think the bottom could fall out in South Carolina. And then he's got a real problem going into Super Tuesday. So he's put a real push on here. And I think his people think he can finish second. But uh, but uh, Pete has a great organization on the ground here. So does Warren. Klobuchar doesn't have much here, but she's bought a fortune uh, in, in TV. And so I, I think that it's going to be interesting because they know they, they know that at least they think Bernie's going to win. And everyone on that stage wants to finish in second place in Nevada. So to have more to build on the momentum from from the previous states. And so I think uh, even though I think James is right about Biden, to some extent, he can stay out of it. I don't think the others can stay out of it. And I think they got to they, they got to come after both both uh, Bloomberg and Bernie tonight. Yeah. A respectable fifth is an oxymoron in, in, uh, uh, yeah, in politics. Right, exactly. right, right. Yeah. So you are, you are uh, Mayor Pete and, and Senator Amy, all right? You have, to make, you have to make a choice in prep. And one of the things I would, might do if I were them is you know this thing is, you know, and I don't know if anybody has the skill to do this, but, you know, if, you, if you're like a football game, the, the situation changes as the game goes on. And you know that Warren and you know the moderators are going to go after Bloomberg and Bernie too. And you got to hit a seam when there's an opportunity for you to jump in and, you know, say something clever in the midst of all of this carnage, you, you can find an opening. But if, if you just jump, if you just get behind everybody else and just beat up on Bloomberg, you're not going to do it as well as Warren because you're not as smart and you're not as good a lawyer as she is. And you just got to anticipate as, as, as you got to, try to anticipate what's going to happen. And as it unfolds, and then where do you come into it? How do you make yourself heard in that debate? And we're going to see if, if, if either one of those two have the political skill to do that. Uh, we've already uh, over overkept you because uh, I know you have an incredibly busy day before tonight. John, there's one problem having you on, however. You know, what do we do for an encore next week and two weeks and three weeks and now? Maybe we'll just have to come back to talk about Nevada and the general election. But thank you so much for being with us, and we'll all be watching you tonight. James, we're going to continue on a roll after John Ralston. Uh, we have uh, a guy who I think has probably knows as much about voting patterns, demographics, uh, as, as anyone uh, in America. Rui Teixeira uh, works at the Center for American Progress, or he's a fellow there at Brookings. He has studied voting patterns, and he's studying demographics probably as well as anyone in America. And Rui, who is at home now, uh, for a while, uh, is kind enough to join us. How are you, Rui? I'm good, and you guys? Well, we're good, and we were just both captivated by 
your piece in the Washington Post uh, last uh, weekend. Uh, and the gospel, the mantra of all ideological candidates, left and right, has been we're gonna we're gonna turn out new, we're gonna energize people, we're gonna enlarge in the franchise, uh, and this is the whole message of Bernie Sanders now. And I thought you wrote a pretty compelling, not a pretty, a very compelling piece that said, "Hey, folks, that just doesn't happen." Elaborate a little. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's, it's as as you say. Um you know, candidates that are advocating radical policies, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're really cranking up the volume on whatever their preferred ideology is. Uh, people will typically say to them, and with some reason, well, are you sure this will work? I mean, what if it turns off some voters who are more in the middle? What if this is a bit too much for people? And the standard reply, and I, I call it magical pixie dust that they sprinkle over their positions, is to say, well, yeah, to the extent that's a problem, it'll be overwhelmed by this massive turnout of, you know, in Bernie Sanders' case, young people. You know, I guess sometimes he throws in non-whites or working-class people or whatever, but he primarily talks about young people. But the basic idea is we'll get so much turnout because our positions will jazz people so much that, you know, we're going to win anyway, regardless of whether we turn off a few people. Well, and you, you cite the 2018 and other elections as as disproving that. Yeah, well, 2008 is such a good example. And I mean, it's a really, really a bit astonishing that, uh, you know, people make these arguments uh, when 2018 is staring them in the face because it does contradict them on every single level, right? The Democrats had good turnout in 2018, but so did everybody else. Um, if you look, if you actually break down why the Democrats won the seats they did, why they got the margin shifts they did in that election, Catalyst, which is the big data firm that does the best analyses that I know of, the most complete one, complete ones of the trends in that election, shows pretty conclusively that 90% basically of the Democrats' margin shift in that election was attributable not to turnout repeat, not to turn up, but rather to persuasion. Basically, Trump voters who voted, uh, people who voted for Trump in 2016 have wound up voting Democratic in various races in 2018. So that doesn't fit. And then, well, you ask yourself, okay, turnout was great. Well, why was that? Well, as far as we can figure out, it had nothing to do with people advocating particularly radical positions. They just didn't like Trump. They ran on health care. They ran against his sort of overall priorities and, and taxes and other things. And, uh, you know, they, they crushed it, right? Uh, but it wasn't because they advocated particularly ideological or extreme positions. That's just not the case. So 2018 was a massively successful election for the Democrats, was massively not predicated on the very thing Sanders says is going to produce a political revolution. So I do think that's that's pretty important to uh, to point to when people think about the plausibility of Bernie Sanders' case. You know, I've been doing this since 1982. And I've been hearing this shit all the time. That look, James, if we just went there, we would activate the base and blah 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 blah. And it's so stupid, I don't even listen to it. But it and it just kept going. It just it, now it's that. So in Texas, in Beto O'Rourke, of course, I think it was Nate Cohn that said, "Well, you know, young your turnout wasn't what was about what you'd expected. Non-white turnout was about what you expected. What happened was you had massive shifts, particularly in the suburbs." Right, which lays waste to this argument that you keep hearing is that it doesn't matter if you know because we're, we're so ideologically polarized that it, it, it's it's the British Labour Party, okay? If they'd have had one of the Millibanks and not Jeremy 
Bernie Sanders COVID, they would be in charge of Parliament, as it is their, their political pile of salt. And we're writing our own suicide telegram, a suicide note. I, I, I really believe that. Yeah. No, that's a very, you know, I, I, I definitely believe you've been hearing this for 40 years because it is, it is a golden oldie. I mean, when I first started studying politics, actually some of the first articles I wrote about it were to make empirical arguments that people overestimated the wonder working powers of turnout. And, and usually there's a lot of other stuff going on, but there's a good reason why people advocate this. And it goes back to what I said. It's, it's basically magical thinking. It allows you, it's like free money. You say, well, we can advocate whatever we want because it's going to produce so much turnout. Any other bad effects will just go away. And it's not, right. it's, it sounds plausible to people, or it sounds like it might work, and it's certainly a way of avoiding dealing with the difficult questions of trade-off within the actually existing electorate between people who like and do not like your position. So, um, you know, that's – it's just people not only have said it for 40 years or whatever, they'll continue saying it, but we shouldn't be taken in by it because it just is not an empirically – sound case. I mean, it's not even a sound case that if you excite your, the people who are excited by your positions, this is another thing that I got into in the piece, will necessarily, you know, not be outweighed by people who are really annoyed by what you say, right? And that's the essence of a lot of these studies that have been done that have shown ideologically extreme candidates do in fact increase turnout somewhat among their so-called base, but they increase turnout on the other parties even more. <laughs> right. Well, well, you know, I, I mean, just, just to interrupt for one second, it's not just 40 years. You can go back to two, two great examples of this, James and Rui. Barry Goldwater in 1964 and George McGovern in 1972. That's exactly what they said. That was exactly what those campaigns were predicated upon, and I think we know the outcomes. You're right. It, it's just, it, they, it, you have a choice, I tell people. Do you want to be part of a deep cult or a broad coalition? Right? If you're in a deep coach, you don't have to make any choices. Everybody is just like you. Everybody thinks like you. Everybody has the same view. If that you're not going to win, a cult is like my daughter's in a sorority at LSU. They're all 5'8 and 126 pounds and Rolexes and BMW X5s. Well, that's a cult. All other kids hate them. All right? They're not, they're not, they're not, they're just some kids getting together. And it, but I don't want the Democratic Party to be like that. I, in in be, being in a, a coalition is difficult. It shifts. You have to accommodate different people in your coalition. It's disparate. It's all of this. But that's your choice. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. It is the choice. I mean, you either do real politics or you do wishful thinking. And I think this is in the wishful thinking category. I mean, it's very comforting for people, though, I think, to think they don't have to make these trade-offs. They can be as, you know, as radical as they want to be, and it'll all turn out great. But the problem is it doesn't really match up particularly well with reality. Um, so this is, uh, yeah, I'm not sure the Democrats are dead yet, but I mean, this is not, I would say, a good course they're on, which is too bad because you look at even the so-called moderate candidates like Klobuchar and Biden, what have you, they're actually, you know, looked at in comparison to Democratic programs in the last 20 years. So they're remarkably progressive. The whole party's moved to the left, but that doesn't mean you could be as left-wing as you want and it'll produce a great result. Oh, like Bloomberg, Bloomberg is more liberal and economically by now than Elizabeth Warren, if you agree with Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, so, uh, well, that's where we are. Um, you know, Sanders is clearly the favorite at this point to get the nomination. Uh, so we'll just have to deal with it if he does. Uh, maybe he'll moderate his stance a little bit, though I was 
a little disturbed to see uh, the other, you know, just last night that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was said at one uh, very recently, well, you know, Bernie's advocating Medicare for all, but if we get a pub- public option, that's still a pretty great fallback position. And Sanders went out of his way to criticize her and say, no, no, no. No, no, no. My, my, pro, my, my bill is already a compromise. We, we can't, you know, in any way go back on this. So that does not speak well for him uh, moderating his positions in a general election context. Really, good God almighty, when AOC is the moderate uh, in the campaign, we may we, we may be in we may be in real trouble. Uh, but, but, you know, it reminds me, you know, when she says that and the congresswoman from Michigan, Bernie or left wing candidate may increase turnout somewhat in their district. But what they're what the trade off is going to be is that there are dozens of Abigail Spanberger, Mikey Sherrill, Jason Crow districts where it's not going to increase turnout or if it's going to increase turnout as much on the other side. And you're going to lose those voters that shifted from 16 to Democratic candidates in 18. That's what they don't. That's what they won't face up to. Yeah, those folks are as nervous as a long tail cat in a room full of rocking chairs. And, and the right, to, the right to be so. I mean, this is, uh, you know, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez may be killing it in some district in Queens, and Bernie may have cleaned up in Vermont. But Lord Almighty, I mean, this is like, you know, the country as a whole is so different than those little enclaves. So to speak. It, uh, yeah. it, and and it, when you you argue with them. It doesn't do any good. And then you get so, and you say, well, let me point out something to you. 18% of the United States elects 52 senators. Your urban core is not going to have any power. So let's just assume that Sanders is the nominee. Let's assume he scratches out 280 votes. Let's assume that Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats hang out majority, but you don't have the Senate back. So you're not getting, you're not getting a public option. You're not getting anything, nothing. Zip. You'll, you'll get competent ambassadors if you can get them confirmed. And so in 2022, we're going to get slaughtered because we went in promising revolutionary change and screaming at the microphone and not doing the hard work of building a coalition. And we're going to get slaughtered in 2022 because we promised pie in the sky things and got nothing done. I mean, you know that's going to happen. Yeah, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see that kind of path. So it's not only that you know, the, uh, this formula might not work even for electing the president, but it's also the case that it's even more unlikely to work for actually giving the Democrats control of government so they can do what they say they want to do. So it's, uh, it's doubly dumb. The, the, these people that advocate that are the intellectual equivalent of climate deniers. All right? They really are. Every piece of evidence that there is Every piece of evidence there is, you can't win a national election by going deeply, deeply ideological. And, you know, if you're looking at an election, I, I just want to get you to react to this. Everything I see, so Trump got 46.1 in 2016. The Republicans got 44.8 in 2018. His polling average, I don't even need to look anymore, but it's 43.4, right? There's convergence here. There's convergence. This means that. 55% of the country is open to a Democrat. Now, we, got, we, got, we got a 55% sandbox to play in here. Now, you, you get third party, you, you become unacceptable. If you do any kind of thing, you reduce that. But why don't we, why don't we understand it, that we're a political party, and we, we're told that it's, it's polarized evenly. It's actually not. 
right? He can't get, unless we have Bernie Sanders and stuff, then he might be able to get to 46 again. But you get a third party and you have distribution. And, it, and if I had hair to tear out, I would. But this is, the, this is how inane this whole conversation is. But we, we have to have it because it, it's like these. Their conversation, yeah, not, not our not conversation. Yes, they're like the climate deniers. They, evidence be damned. We, we're just going to yeah, keep repeating yeah. this. There's actually a very simple way to think about this election. Uh, and it's something point I made a number of times. The real task for any Democratic candidate, whomever they may be, is to convert Trump disapproval into Democratic votes. More successful you are doing that, the more likely you are to win. And you could even win quite easily if you're able to do that very efficiently. Everything that takes away from that, that convert, you know, that transformation, turning those Trump disapproval, which is still the majority, you know, solid majority of the country into Democratic votes is, is taking away from your likelihood of winning. Uh, Hillary Clinton was not able to do that in 2016. She was a poor candidate for that. Uh, you know, the Democrats should make the same mistake this time around. And certainly they should be focused on that because that really is the fundamental political goal to take all those people out there who don't like Trump and get them to vote Democratic. Don't give them excuses to bail out and say, ah, I can't tell the difference. They're all screwed up. You know, really, let me I mean, a lot of that. And I, I'm sure I'm exaggerating, but but we're we're talking to a large extent about the suburbs. The suburbs everywhere, not just in the Northeast, but the suburbs in in Dallas, the suburbs, uh, uh, you know, across the country. Uh, and and what I mean, you look at this carefully. Suburbs are a little bit different politically today than they were 10, 15 years ago, aren't they? Yeah, they sure are. I mean, they're they're basically uh, have moved significantly, especially the, you know, more educated parts and the women in these suburbs have moved toward the Democrats really don't like what. Trump and the current GOP is about, but they're not, you know, they may be left on economics relative to where the same people might have been 15 or 20 years ago, but they're not left in the Bernie Sanders sense. They're just not. So uh, if you want to get maximize your votes coming out of those kinds of suburbs, you've, you've got to have a different approach. You can't just like let her rip and, and sort of have the maximally progressive program. The same thing is true, I might add, for white non-college women, who some of whom live in these inners, a lot in the outer suburbs, some in rural areas. I mean, the data I've been looking at recently from a big survey, I'll have a piece coming out about this very soon, the big nationscape survey that we do, 6,000 people every week. It's clear white non-college women are so much more open to the Democrats than white non-college men. Um, their approval rating for Trump is almost even, right? They have very relatively high disapproval of Trump. They have a far smaller deficit against a Democratic candidate than the white non-college man, and they're very open to some very basic economic, uh, you know, sort of ideas that the um, that the Democrats have, including a public option, including you know even things like a path to citizenship for Dreamers. But they don't want open borders, right? I mean, you you can paint the picture. You can reach these people, and if you reach these people and you knock the deficit that uh, the Democrats have among white non-college voters as a whole, you knock that down, you know, three, four, or five points, you practically got the election. And so that's another sort of, you know, low-hanging fruit that the Democrats should be going after. You got it won. I'm part of a group. We're spending $50 million in 77 rural counties in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and maybe Florida. I mean, the only way you can do that 
and you know we're, we're assigning a value. So we know that a, that a female, you know, a white rural female is better. You know, we know from church attendance to gun ownership to to you name it. We we can and if we just cut the margins out there, as opposed to getting beat eighty five fifteen, you get beat get beat seventy thirty. You change sea level. Exactly. Boy, have I ever made everything. that point a million times, and it seems to go right past a lot of people. <laughs> but it's so true. And, and, and it's not. You're right. And people say, well, James, that you're not going to win these people. I'm not trying to win them. I'm trying to lose less. Right, exactly. Exactly. And it's going in the wrong direction. And it just, it's so unbelievably frustrating. Like I said, I, I know the way these climate scientists think when you have these people saying this. And I, 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 your, your voice was just really important. To, to weigh in on, on this issue. Really, before we, before, and you, this has been wonderful, and you've analyzed this just brilliantly. You know, before we go, let me, let me, maybe, maybe this is outside your wheelhouse. You decide. What's your, what's your gut sense tell you as someone who follows politics closely of the potential and the pitfalls for Michael Bloomberg? Well, um, you know, on, the, on his, uh, on the positive side for him in terms of getting the nomination, he's got like a, a bazillion dollars, which he's willing to spend. He has a profile that people, to the extent they know about it, they think he's sort of a moderate dude. You know, he's certainly not a Bernie Sanders or even a, an Elizabeth Warren. So I think that's on his, his side. I think he's a little bit, um, you know, he's dissident with where the Democratic Party is at in several ways, though. I mean, he is a gazillionaire, which isn't exactly super popular within the Democrats. It doesn't necessarily suit this populist moment that well. He has question marks about things concerning race and gender that are could be potentially difficult for him, at least in the uh, the primary contest, uh, you know, primary context. But, um, you know, would he match up well against Trump? Well, you know, maybe. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd have to see. I mean, right now he runs about as strong, and not that they mean that much, in the trial heats now as, as say, Biden and Sanders do. Um, and you could sort of, certainly paint a picture where he's able to be very competitive against, against Trump. On the other hand, you could paint a picture where, you know, he crashes and burns, too, because he's just too easy. Even though Trump is a billionaire, everybody knows he's kind of like a fake billionaire. He's like a populist figure. So he'll run against someone like Bloomberg as a decadent New York billionaire who could care less about real people in America. So I do think he has a vulnerability. Um, on the other hand, I mean, just looked at in policy terms, I mean, there's a lot of things I don't like about Bloomberg in terms of policy, but just like, you know, anyone running in a democratic primary today, he actually has a lot of pretty progressive programs. So if he was able to be elected and, you know, carry the Senate with him, as James was talking about him, I mean, they do some good stuff. Would it be, you know, maximally great? No, but it would be better than Trump? Yes. So I don't know. That's kind of a free association of the Bloomberg uh, candidacy implications. Well, that's I think it's interesting. And we'll probably know a lot more uh, in uh, about uh, 17 hours or whatever it is. Uh, but listen, uh, Rui, you have been terrific. Uh, once again, James and I, James, it's good to be educated, you know, I mean, <laughs> to have people like Rui on is educational. I got one more question I want to ask him. Okay. Yeah. You, you know, you and uh, you, you and John Jones did the, the emerging Democratic majority. Of course, the Democrats have won the popular vote at six out of the last seven or whatever it is. Right. Where, where, I mean, looking down the road, where, where do you see American political parties going in their relative strength? 
Right. Well, as, uh, as I'm fond of saying, we were right about the emerging Democratic majority. It's just inefficiently distributed. So, yeah, it's pretty clear that the demographic and ideological trends we, we targeted uh, in our book, uh, a lot of them have come to fruition. Now, I'm, a, I'm involved in a big project called uh, States of Change, Demographics and Democracy. It's been going on for five or six years. And in, in that um, in that um, project, we do track the evolving demographics in the United States, project them into the future, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road. And it's pretty clear which way those demographics are going. It's whittling away inexorably at the Republican coalition as it's currently constituted. Um, one thing we're doing this year is we're actually looking at the possible effects of generational turnover in the electorate, which are I think dramatically understated given what we know about millennials and Gen Z and how different they are. So there's a lot of, you know, thumbs on the scale for the Democrats at this point, which should a, you know, give them a better terrain to fight on in the future. B, you know, hard as it is to believe must someday, someday uh, move the Republicans back toward the center if they want to, you know, still be competitive against the Democrats and have majority coalitions. So, um, you know, I'm I'm mildly optimistic about the future, but I think we're in a in a rough spot now. And I think the goal for Democrats should be win as fast as possible and as completely as possible, uh, and make this transition happen as as quickly as possible. And I think that, you know, right now, I think we've been discussing that seems questionable if we're adopting the most efficient strategy. That's my strategy: win as big as you can as soon as you can. Well, we got eight and a half months left, and. and, and and I think, uh, you know, one thing I want, James, is I want to have Rui back on again before November, uh, at least, uh, because I think there's a lot that's going to start to evolve. Thank you so much. You have just been terrific. And uh, uh, as I say, we learned something and we'll look forward to having you back. OK, Rui? OK, a total pleasure. I enjoyed it. James, let's let's turn to the back page. Uh, I'm going to start narrowly, and you can take it a little bit broad, more broadly, I suspect. But uh, I am the Trump pardons just really, really offend me. Every president's entitled to pardon someone. There's no question of that. But first of all, the people he's uh, pardoning: Rod Blagojevich, you know, just a thoroughly crooked governor of Illinois, tried to sell a Senate seat. Bernie Carrick, the Twice indicted and convicted, uh, former Rudy Giuliani uh, crony. Uh, I, I mean, these are just, and Mike Milken. These are all political payoffs, is what they are, for different reasons. And that's not what the pardon or the commutation system is designed to do. There's no question he has the right, but he did not run it through the Justice Department. Didn't run it through any 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 kind of uh, checks. Because he doesn't care. It's all to him. It's all about politics. And it really is. For a guy who said he was going to clean out the deep state, I'll tell you something. It's just getting murkier and muddier and swampier every goddamn day. Of course, a white-collar criminal will pardon other white-collar criminals because he doesn't believe that white-collars can commit crimes. Right? It, that That's totally the people that he pardoned are, are totally the kinds of people that he would he wants to be around, white-collar criminals, because he is one. And, and you know, it's, it's just not that. You, you, the, the Boy Scouts are now bankrupt because, of course, they had 
wide and everything else. Cardinal, now we find out, and we thought we knew everything about the Roman Catholic Church. Now Cardinal McCarrick was bribing Vatican officials to the tune of $600,000. Right? By the way, that was money that you know, was tax deductible. Then you got the Houston Astros, and, and maybe the, the most complete disaster in the history of professional sports that can't even get a competent apology out. Right? And people look around, it's just corruption everywhere. It's just that's just what it is. And and you don't have look look at you know these these universities, this, the University of Southern California, just corruption everywhere. And and it, it people are just and I don't I don't have a hard time blaming them. I, I mean no one went to jail for the financial crisis. It it just you know, power is just not held accountable. And it, it is a bad situation here in the United States. And I mean, he, 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 the attorney general is totally lawless. That We're a post-constitutional republic. The United States of America, 1789-2020. I, I mean, we might be able to get it back, but you, you can't tell me bar up. Wait, we have an open line for the president's lawyer to call the Justice Department to investigate any political enemy they want to. I mean, I'm sorry. That's so not the way the world. You have 1,100 federal judges talking about convening. You have 1,000 former prosecutors. The, 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 The rule of law is broken down. It's broken down. And if he is reelected, it, it, there's going to be no law. There's going to be no NATO. There's going to be no law. We've talked about it before, but there is a terrific book called How Democracies Die. And what happens is, I mean, most of the bad guys in the <clears throat> last hundred years that um, uh, became these awful, you know, not the terrible, dreadful dictators, Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, Chavez, they were all elected. I mean, not, you know, not so much Stalin, but the others, they were elected. Putin, yeah. And what happens is they come in, they're authoritarian, and the guardrails come down. And basically, if you don't have a Republican Party that's willing to stand up for principle, which you don't have, there is not a Republican Party today. It's a Trump Party. And if you don't have courts and you don't have a Justice Department uh, that's willing to say we have to have a fair administration of justice, then we, we really are at peril of going the same way. And that's not an exaggeration. You know, it would delve into lawlessness, it, 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 you know, the, the rich people, it really helps them. They, they can just go out and do their manipulations right out in public. But Trump's a career criminal. And he doesn't think there's much wrong with criminality. He's not at all bothered by it. In fact, I think he kind of respects it. I really do. I, I, I mean, it's so bad. It, it's so bad. It, 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 but the signal that he sends is, is a signal that's get, that people are receiving. Well, in that in that terrific book by uh, uh, those two Washington Post reporters, a very stable genius. Anyone who hasn't read Carol uh, Carol Lennig's uh, 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 book or uh, Phil's book ought to read it. And he, at one, you know, he really he wanted to do away with the Foreign Corrupt uh, 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 Practices Act, the Bribery Act. I mean, you know, basically, why shouldn't you be able to bribe? Of course, what he doesn't understand, because he is, as you say, a pervasive career criminal. What I understand is that kind of act protects American business. It doesn't harm them. Uh, but, you know, he doesn't care about that. Um, it doesn't see anything wrong. Understand this. 
He doesn't see anything wrong with bribing someone. He's done it all his life. I, it'd be like saying, it's, it's, just, it's just something he does every day. He, he bribed his way, his daddy bribed his way. He's, he's just a career criminal, and he doesn't see, why, why have this, all of these laws? You don't need that. I mean, why, why tell people they can't pollute? Just put whatever you want in, in, in the river, and you'll create jobs. I don't know what, you know, and take as much money as you can from the pollution industry. You imagine how much money the don- donors and the pollution lobby has given to Trump and his enterprises? Oh, God. Gazillions. Gazillions. It's, it is, it's, it's the corruption. I mean, that, that's, what's got, that's what's happening right in front of people's very eyes. Well, it is. Um, and to close on a more upbeat note, however, the catchers and pitchers and now the position players are reporting to spring training. And, you know, James, it's, uh, it's only about five weeks to opening day. And I'm now optimism not only springs, it just soars uh, in February. We're going to have another good year this year. Uh, I think so. And I think the, the, the player that I'm, I'm going to have the most to do with it is Victor Robles. I, I think if Victor Robles does what people think he can, I mean, I saw where Ryan Zimmerman said he's going to be Andrew McCutcheon in his prime. Well, if he's Andrew McCutcheon in his prime, we're going to really be good. Oh, man. Well, I, I think you're right. That'd be my first choice. My second choice would be Trey Turner having a, a, a healthy breakout season where he becomes one of, the, one of the three or four premier shortstops in baseball. Uh, he's, it, Trey's numbers are pretty pretty solid, but they're pretty predictable, and he'll bat 290, you know? Well, I if mean, he stays it, healthy and bats yeah, 290 stay healthy. Yeah. in 150 games, that's when, when yeah, you know, pretty, yeah. and he, I mean, oh, yeah. he was playing last year with a, you know, finger that could barely be extended. Right. No, so, oh, no, uh, defensively, but, yeah, as a base runner, he's, right. he's really bad. And, and so is Robles, but you're right yeah. about it. If Victor Robles is an Andrew McCutcheon, and you yeah. have Robles and, and Soto hitting back to back. Right, we don't, we don't, we know where Soto's going. Okay. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Ain't, ain't much room for upside for him. <laughs> and final thing I would say from my point of view is I love Max. Max is my favorite pitcher of all times. If Steven is healthy, he's going to win the Cy Young Award. Prediction. I hope you're right. All right, all right. Listen, right. this has been this has been a terrific show. It really, it really has. has. I mean, you get the guests we had. You know, anybody that has any interest in politics. You get John Rawson, you get Rudy to share it, you know, and particularly coming into, you're just, you're not going to get too bad a guess in that. No, no, you're not. You're not. You know, and we're not bad walk-ons. Uh, anyway, uh, I want to thank everybody for listening to 2020 Politics War Room, and I want you to please subscribe, rate, and review, always be kind, the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. For James Carville, I am Al Hunt. We'll talk to you next week. 